Welcome to the Open Bible Podcast, a resource at Church of the Open Bible in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. In today's episode, Pastor Jay and Pastor Joe will just finish discussing the doctrine of eschatology with a summary of the rapture and some of the views of its timing. Hello, church and guests. This is Pastor Jay Hines and Pastor Joe Sorgen welcoming you to another episode of the Open Bible Podcast. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On today's episode, we will be looking at chapters 85 to 89 of Charles Ryrie's book, Basic Theology, which continues his section on the things to come with a summary of the rapture and also a survey of different views about its timing. So what exactly is the rapture of the church according to the New Testament? What are we talking about when we use that word? Yeah, so uh, the the rapture, kind of the, the word that that comes from is a Greek word that means caught up. And we see that in uh, in a couple different passages in, in uh, the New Testament, specifically in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, verses 13 to 18, probably gives us the most clear uh, example of the rapture when it says this, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be, here is the word, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so these verses are describing to us the rapture where the dead in Christ will rise first and meet the uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in the air. And then those who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the sky. And it's going to be this uh, the, the most amazing family reunion of all time. And so when we use the word rapture, we're talking about this event that's being described here, uh, which is basically this translation of living believers from, from their earthly mortality to, to their heavenly immortality, and also the resurrection of the dead believers uh, to have new life and be given their, their new resurrection bodies as well, again, as is being described here in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes people will say, well, the rapture is not in the Bible. Where's that word? Well, it's just the Latin translation for that Greek word you said is translated yeah. in most English translations is caught up. Yeah. And, and yeah, there's, there's basically these three things that are going to happen. There's this return of Christ into the clouds, right? And he, he calls his, his, uh, he's a cry and the, the archangel um, and a trumpet of God. And then with that sort of calling upon his return, there's the, the resurrection of dead saints and then also the living believers in the church age. And then there's this reunion in the clouds, right? With Christ and and with each other. And as Paul goes on to say, it's a reason for encouragement. This, like you said, this great big family reunion with all the people of God uh, when Christ returns for his church. Uh, That's the main passage, but there's two more. Mm -hmm. Another would be 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 to 58. This passage mostly just tells us what or exactly how, I guess, this resurrection's going to happen. And uh, here he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, mystery, mysterion in Greek does not mean 
uh, something, some, some secret that only a few people can understand or something that, you know, is mysterious, but rather it, it's just a word that means uh, a truth that had not yet been revealed. But now Paul's revealing it, that the truth about the rapture is not something that had been revealed until the church began at Pentecost. And now within the epistles, uh, we're being explicitly told about it. And he says, we shall not all sleep, which is a euphemism for death, but we shall all be changed. So in other words, those who have slept, who have died, believers, and those who are living. And then he says this, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. And he goes on to uh, just talk a bit more about that. But essentially, this is just telling us there's going to be this moment, this flash, this boom. And, and that's that's what's going to happen um, when Christ returns and that resurrection uh, at, at the rapture. Um, one thing I just want to mention here is sometimes there's been this idea that has been popularized in some fiction books that this is going to be a secret rapture. And I think that thinking of that, I'm not sure where that's come from other than the fact that because it's going to be instantaneous, maybe sometimes people think it's going to be the secret rapture. All of a sudden, all the believers are just going to disappear and everyone's going to be like, what happened? I don't buy that mostly because there's going to be this great cry. There's going to be the archangel's voice. There's going to be this trumpet blasting. That just, that doesn't sound like a secret event to me. It sounds like a very public event. A rapture uh, is going to be something that is uh, known. And so I, you know, there, there can be debate on that, whatever, but I, it seems to me that the language, I, I can't see how Paul could have made it more clear that this is going to be something that people are going to hear and uh, be aware that it happens. Now, even though this is a truth that is more explicitly revealed uh, after the church age begins, we do see in John 14, which now because of the truth in the epistles that we just read, uh, seems to be also Jesus pointing, though not fully revealing what sounds like the rapture. Uh, in John 14, 1 to 3, where Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have not told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And here it is. And if I go and prepare, excuse me, prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Well, now that we know about this teaching on the rapture from 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians 15, we can look back at that and see, oh, so that is clearly talking about Jesus coming. And he's not saying, I'm going to come to earth and I'm going to rule and reign over my kingdom on earth. But rather he's saying, I'm going to come to you, right? The believers, and I'm going to bring you to this home I've been preparing for you in heaven to take you with me where I am, right? Which seems to also uh, point to uh, this, this event, the rapture. Now, you know, you read those passages, clearly this is a I mean, you can't deny this is an event. This is going to happen. There's going to be this catching up and this resurrection and this reunion. But with that said, there are some uh, very divergent views, different views about when this is going to happen, about its timing and specifically where the rapture lands um, with regard to the timing of the tribulation. Right. Yeah. And I, I think a big reason for these different views is is partially just because of how quickly um, some of the teaching regarding the rapture spread uh, once it was beginning to be uh, popularized and, and it spread quickly. And there were still some questions that were, were unanswered or people had different answers to. 
And basically what it came down to and continues to come down to today is that there's just different interpretations of the scriptures regarding the rapture mm-hmm. uh, and different understandings of, of timelines and, you know, whether something we read uh, is chronological or not chronological, um, you know, whether we understand, um, you know, the difference between being met up in the sky and, and on earth and all these different things have, have caused there to be different timelines regarding when this rapture will happen. And, and we'll kind of delve a little deeper into that uh, in a little bit here. Yeah. And I, there's just, we have to come to this in particular, this teaching humbly, because, you know, we have to admit it's not explicit. If it was, then all Bible believing Christians would agree. Right. And, and, you know, we can't, give people bad motives that somehow, well, you're just forcing your theology. Well, then no, I don't think that's the case. Or, you know, um, you have some kind of agenda to, uh, which we can talk about a little bit later. Those are all straw men. Really the issue just is there's a lot of teaching about Christ's coming and it's putting the pieces together like a puzzle. And it's not super easy to figure out how mm-hmm. they all fit together. And so as, as we're trying to do that, um, you know, we come out at a certain view about the timing of the rapture, because as we put all the pieces together, we feel like it fits best this way. But we do realize that there might be a few pieces that don't fit quite as easily. <laughs> and maybe those pieces fit a little bit more easily into a different view, but they got a lot more pieces that we feel like don't don't fit yeah like in our opinion basically where where we come out about the rapture that's where we think the most biblical evidence is pointing towards but others would disagree with us and think that the most biblical evidence points towards uh their point of view about this and and like you said that's okay we can agree to disagree with this it's not no reason to necessarily be dogmatic but yet we hold to what we believe because we believe what our interpretation of the bible uh and and we hold that with faith um and And that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, I about, well, I don't know how many, 10 years ago, I changed my view about this. Um, And, you know, within our church, we don't have a specific, uh, in our doctrinal statement, we're not specific about the timing of the rapture, right? And so this is an area where we can be gracious Mm -hmm. uh, with each other. But with that said, let's just look, there's there's basically three main views about the timing of the rapture. And the first is the post-tribulation rapture view. So let's uh, just talk briefly about that, summarize it, sort of the the um, the argument for that and then why we ultimately reject that view. Yeah, so as the name kind of implies, a post-tribulation rapture is a, a rapture that happens after the, the Great Tribulation, which we talked about last episode. So there's going to be this seven-year period uh, of trouble, of great, great trouble that the world has never, ever seen before And those who hold to a post-tribulation rapture believe that Christians uh, who are alive at the beginning of that tribulation will live through that that great tribulation. Some, of course, will be martyred, will be killed as we we do see uh, throughout the Bible. Um, But they will be protected to some extent by God uh, from from the different uh, things that are coming. They'll face the wrath of man on earth, but not the wrath of God um, because of different uh, passages of scripture that make it very clear that we'll be, uh, you know, protected from the wrath of God. And so uh, those who hold to a post-tribulation rapture would say that. And so the seven years happen, there's still Christians left at the end of the 
of the great tribulation. And that's when this rapture event happens where, where Jesus comes down and, and the Christians come up and they, they meet uh, in the sky. And that would be followed up by the thousand years, the, the millennial reign, followed by uh, eternity. And so basically the rapture and the second coming are one event that happens at the end of the great tribulation. And, uh, and there's different reasons, you know, why people would, would hold to that view. Um, and, and, uh, one would be that the word parousia, which is, um, how we are that, that word is translated that caught up that I was mentioning before. And that word is used in a couple different passages, one being in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which I've already read. Another one being in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, uh, which is also talking about this event where, where Jesus comes as well. Um, and so you have these two different comings uh, mentioned in two different passages. And those who hold to a post-trib rapture would say, well, since it's the same word, this must be the exact same event because both of them talk about this this coming of Jesus. But I think uh, I think that there is this really good illustration that, that Ryrie used in his book, uh, talking about grandparents who are expecting their grandkids to come over. And uh, and he, he just said, you know, if you're talking to these grandparents and they said, oh, we just can't wait until next week because our grandkids are coming to visit. And, you know, if someone heard that, they'd be like, oh, that's really good. And then uh, they, they talk a few days later and then they say something along the lines uh, these grandparents do to this, uh, you know, family, friends or whatever. They say, oh, we're so excited for when our grandkids are going to be coming for our 50th wedding anniversary. Now, a person who's hearing that could come to two different conclusions. One of the conclusions would be, okay, well, their grandkids are coming next week and that must also be when uh, this 50th wedding anniversary is coming or is happening. So this is one event, but you don't need to understand it that way. You could also understand that these are two separate events. These grandparents, grandkids are coming next week, but they're also coming later in the year for, uh, for the wedding anniversary that will be happening. And so you can see how, even though the Bible uh, mentions this word parousia in a couple different places, talking about a coming of Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean this is one distinct event. It could very well be two. And so I would just say that that, that isn't, uh, you know, that's not a, a great argument. It's not the strongest argument, mm -hmm. in my opinion, uh, for a, a post-tribulation rapture. And so yeah. uh, I just think, again, that the evidence, I don't, I personally don't think it's the strongest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's obviously others too, just really quickly. Um, mm -hmm. One, and this is maybe, the, I would say, personally the strongest is the la the issue of the last trumpet although it has its problems um clearly uh there's talk about this trumpet being blown in matthew 24 when jesus returns but also in first Thessalonians 4 and then first corinthians 15 it talks about at the rapture this last trumpet well they'll say post-tribulationists will say okay well there's the last trumpet judgment in revelation and that is not at the beginning of the tribulation they would say that, um, therefore, that last trumpet, uh, that the rapture must happen at that last trumpet. And so clearly that's not um, that, that that's not before the tribulation. Well, the problem with that, first of all, is, yeah, but the last trumpet is not at the end of the tribulation either. It's in the middle. And the other issue is there's all kinds of trumpets. 
in scripture. Like the Jews had different trumpets they used for different events, different timings. So just the the connection between the trumpets, I get that, but I just don't think it's it's there's a strong enough connection, strong enough evidence. Um, all, another is that in Revelation 20, it talks about that being at, when right at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, the first resurrection as the martyrs who died in, in the tribulation times are resurrected. And they'll say, well, see the first resurrection. Well, that must mean then that that's when the rapture is because the rapture is when we are believers are resurrected. So if that's the first resurrection, it has to be uh, the timing of the rapture. But the issue with that is there's, there were already were a number of resurrections before that Jesus was resurrected. Um, all these uh, believing Jews were resurrected as we read in Matthew, right? Um, after uh, Jesus resurrection as well. And uh, first resurrection can just mean the first resurrection as in the resurrection unto life, right? Which has a number of different times when that's happened. Jesus, the first fruits, then us, right? Uh, and then at the end of the tribulation, the believers who come through that. And then there's the second resurrection, the resurrection unto the dead, which happens after the millennial kingdom. So I just, I don't think that quite uh, is strong evidence either. Uh, another interesting one is in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, which we looked at last week briefly about how the day of the Lord and how the time of the tribulation begins. And it talks about there being this great apostasy, uh, the revealing of the Antichrist, etc. And post-tribulationists will say, look, here was Paul's perfect opportunity. If the rapture comes before the tribulation, why didn't he just say, well, of course, it's not the day of the Lord because the rapture hasn't happened yet. But he doesn't say that. Therefore, well, that's an argument from silence. But also, as I mentioned last time, the word translated apostasy, which can also be translated departure, could very well um, also be referring to the rapture, as some argue. So I don't think that's strong enough evidence. Uh, another is that there's no mention of the rapture in the Olivet Discourse, uh, Matthew 24. But that makes sense because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is a new teaching. It's a mystery. It's something that hasn't been revealed before. So Jesus did not include it there. Um, and then and then finally, 2 Thessalonians 1 talks about uh, the persecuted believers being experiencing relief and then the unbelievers being judged when Christ returns. And so the argument will be, well, look, that means those two things go hand in hand. Well, then that has to happen at the second coming after the tribulation before the millennial kingdom. But the problem with that is, is the simple explanation is, well, he's talking about those who are tribulation saints, not church age believers. And also that that could be divided by seven years. There's no reason why that wouldn't happen. Just like we see often with Old Testament prophecy uh, being divided, even though sometimes it looks like it's uh, together. Now, if you're having trouble following all of this, that's okay. If you've studied this before and you maybe kind of get what we're talking about, we just wanted to walk through some of that, some of those um, reasons that are given for this view and just say, you know what, we just don't think it holds up. We respect those who hold this position. We're humble about it. We don't want to say that they're all, you know, idiots or something like that. Like, how can you not see it? You know, we, we understand. We just, we're not convinced of the evidence. Yeah. So that, that would probably be the other major view, other than the one we hold, which we'll get to in a moment. But there's another view that has not been hold by, held by a lot of people, and it's often looked at as kind of like a almost a mediating view. And this is the mid-tribulation rapture view, or sometimes it's called the pre-wrath view. Uh, what exactly does this position uh, hold, and, and why would we also reject it? Yeah, I'll be honest. I find the mid-tribulation rapture to be very intriguing. It really mm -hmm. interests me. And I don't have uh, have the 
best idea of what exactly it holds to. Um, but uh, but yet there, I think there is greater evidence for sure for uh, a pre-trib uh, rapture. So anyways, what, what the mid-tribulation rapture kind of looks like is uh, similarly to the, the post-tribulation rapture, at the beginning of this seven years of tribulation, the Christians will remain. Uh, they will remain on earth for three and a half years, so for half of the tribulation before the rapture actually happens, when Jesus comes to, to the sky and believers go up and meet him. Uh, and then there's another three and a half years on earth where uh, there will be the, the non-believers on earth facing the wrath of God during that time. Uh, and then at the end of that three and a half years and the end of the total of seven years, then the second coming actually takes place, followed by the millennial reign, and then eternity. And just a reminder, sorry, really quick, we talked about it briefly last week. Some people might be wondering, what, what is this seven years? Where does that come from? And that comes from, again, Daniel 9, mm -hmm. where it talks about these weeks, which are clearly sevens, seven years. And that there is one week, one seven-year period that is that was left um, in the prophetic uh, God's prophetic plans or prophetic calendar that still needs to happen, which is this final um, disciplinary years for the nation of Israel and also the judgment of the nations. And we see very clearly in a number of places there, for example, that in the halfway point, there's going to be. Uh, Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel that he's then going to break. And uh, also in Matthew 24, that's when the abomination of desolation happens uh, as well at that halfway point. Uh, also in Revelation, there's a number of times yeah. where we see this three and a half years. So just so everyone understands what's going, what that's about. And the mid-trib people say that the church is raptured at that midpoint because they believe the first half is just is tribulation, but it's not the great tribulation. Yeah. And therefore, the first half isn't God's wrath. And therefore, the church can be here for that. Yeah. And uh, like you've alluded to, you know, the, the reason for believing this largely is because of the emphasis on mm -hmm. uh, the three and a half years. I mean, uh, Daniel 9 verse 27, where it talks about this strong covenant that the, the Antichrist will make, says it'll it'll be for half of this last week, yeah. uh, half of the seven years. And so you get the three and a half there also in in Daniel chapter 12 and other places we read about uh, a time times and half a time or a year two years and half a year which equals mm -hmm. three and a half years and so there's there certainly is this aspect of uh, three and a half years being an important marker uh, throughout the scriptures but um, the, the thing is in all these passages that are talking about the three and a half years or half the week there's actually no mention of the rapture happening uh, during that time whatsoever, mm -hmm. or even the rapture in general during that three and a half years. And so uh, I think it would be, uh, well, I just don't think that there's enough evidence to say then that uh, that the rapture needs to have happened or needs to happen at the halfway point. There's other there's other reasonable uh, things that uh, that we can say uh, that that make this three and a half year time frame significant, such as the signing of of the covenant and things like that. Um, and, and so lots of times uh, what people who believe in the mid-trib view will say is that, uh, like you said, Jay, the first half uh, of the tribulation is man's wrath kind of thing. And there's tribulation, not the great tribulation. It's the second half um, that is this, this time of God's wrath. But the problem with that is there's evidence in the book of Revelation in chapter 6 
verses 16 to 17 uh, that would show us that there is some of God's wrath being poured out even before the three and a half year mark. And so this is what it says there. It says, uh, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. And so, and this would be, this would be taking place uh, before the three and a half year mark and people are hiding themselves and saying the wrath of the Lord has come. And so just looking at that, it seems like, I, I don't know if it's fair to say that the wrath of God only comes at the three and a half mm-hmm. year mark. It seems like um, that that argument doesn't quite line up with what we read here, even in Revelation uh, chapter chapter six. Yeah, and they'll use some of the same arguments as the post-trib that we've already shown don't quite, um, don't persuade us, like the last trumpet. Mm-hmm. And so they'll say, rightly, the last trumpet does seem to be um, the last trumpet in the sense of uh, the the last of the seven trumpet judgments does happen more in the middle of the tribulation. And so they would equate the trumpets then in first Thessalonians four and in first Corinthians 15 as being that last trumpet. And, and again, that's, that's probably their strongest evidence, but like we said, it's, there's no reason that there can't be other trumpets and uh last trumpet can mean different things in different contexts. And it is interesting because the seventh trumpet is never called the last trumpet in revelation. Uh, and then also the same thing with the words they'll say, well, look in Matthew 24, uh, verse 27, it talks about this uh, coming of Christ. It's Perusa. It's the same word that uh, is used for the rapture. Therefore, well, as we just said that, again, it's kind of a weak argument just because the same word is used. It's not a, it's a technical word fallacy. It's, it's, it's just not something you can build your theology on. So, so those would be reasons why we're just not convinced mm-hmm. about this view as well. Uh, the view we are convinced of and that we just want to uh, spell out for you and, and give the reasoning for is what's called the pre-tribulation rapture view. So uh, we've talked already that really these different views have to do with the tribulation. The post-tribulation rapture view says there's these seven years of tribulation and the rapture happens at the end of it, which is synonymous with Christ's second coming and then the millennial reign. The mid-trib view says, no, it's going to happen at the three and a half point. The pre-trib view says, no, actually the rapture is going to happen right before uh, these seven years of tribulation that we're going to be caught up to be with the Lord before any of this occurs. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for this. Yeah, uh, I think probably the the best evidence, one of the best evidences for this is in describing the Lord's coming. Uh, there, there seems like there's two different locations for his coming. Uh, and this, uh, this is made pretty clear in uh in what we read already in First Thessalonians chapter four, which is describing the rapture event, where he is meeting Christians in the sky, it makes that very, very clear. Well, when his coming is described in Zechariah uh, chapter fourteen, verse four, we don't read about him meeting Christians in the sky or, or his people in the sky. Rather, uh, what we read about is. Uh, him meeting them on Mount Zion. His feet will be on the Mount of Olives. This is what it says. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the Mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And this is describing the coming day of the Lord. And so uh, you have 
I, I think if you look at that, you can understand, well, this must be then two separate appearings, one being in the sky, the rapture, one being on the ground, and that's the second coming. And, uh, and there's, there's other evidence as well, other than just that. Um, if you read in uh, Revelation chapter 19 about the Lord's second coming, it, it looks as if and sounds as if he's coming with his people, with his saints um, for, for, you know, during his second coming. And then Armageddon happens and he's coming with this crowd of people. And Revelation chapter 21 alludes to that as well. Well, which people are these? Well, we would say that these are the Christians who were raptured, that were raptured with uh, or that met Christ in the sky before the great tribulation. And then they come again later with him at the second coming. And, uh, and then finally, and this is actually the, the best evidence, I think, and it has to do with facing God's wrath. And we've already looked at how the post-trib and mid-trib kind of deal with that by saying, well, you know, God either specially helps and preserves the Christians who are alive during the tribulation or, uh, only God, God's wrath only comes to the second half, but it seems as if God's wrath is being poured out throughout the seven years. And, uh, and the Bible makes it very clear in, uh, first Thessalonians chapter one, verse 10, that as believers, we will not be facing that wrath that is to come. It says this to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And uh, the context of First Thessalonians here and, and moving forward is always about things to come, about things in the end. And it even says it here, that's delivering us from the wrath to come. This isn't just talking about delivering us from wrath now, here, anything like that. This is talking about the end times. And we will be delivered from it. And, and we understand that to mean we will be gathered together with Christ in the sky. We will not have to face the great tribulation if we are alive when the, the when the rapture happens because he delivers us from that wrath and revelation chapter 3 verse 10 alludes to that fact as well and makes it very clear we won't face that wrath that's not for us to face we are uh by god's grace we are going to be taken up to him and uh, and be able to spend that time with him in heaven and it will be such a huge blessing yeah, I would agree with all that evidence. And I think there's there's even more. In fact, I think there's just far more evidence for this position, which is why I, I changed my view 10 years ago and hold this. Um, the, the chronology of Revelation, and you kind of alluded to this, seems to imply, especially in Revelation 19, that uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb is happening before the second coming. So therefore, well, this great multitude of believers who are enjoying this marriage supper of the Lamb and receiving their rewards right? Being clothed in fine linen. Well, that all happens before the second coming. Well, how is that happening? So does that mean the, the Christians, the church age believers who are going through the tribulation miss out on that? Um, I don't think so. You know, these are, uh, this is something that we are promised as the bride of Christ, the church. Of course, we are going to be part of that event. Uh, that's, that's one of the unique things about the church age that we are the bride of Christ. And therefore, uh, we would be part of that event that also points to a pre-trib rapture uh, that would have happened earlier. Uh, also, another interesting thing is, is that the church is very prevalent in chapter two and three of Revelation. Uh, there's these seven letters to the church. You'd expect the church to be mentioned then over and over again within the rest of Revelation if we were to be part of 
uh, the tribulation period, which begins in Revelation 4 and goes all the way to, to, to 19. But it's interesting that the word church is never used again. Um, but what we do see in Revelation 4 and 5 are these elders laying down their crowns, worshiping at the throne, which seems to be, I would say, a clear um, uh, representation of the church and that we've already received, you know, these rewards and are now um, laying them before the feet of, uh, of the Lord. But what is interesting is once you get into chapter six, who is prevalent is Israel. And you have all this language, 144 and from the 12 tribes. And, you know, it's all language that has to do with Israel. It makes sense that, um, uh, the church would be raptured before the tribulation because the tribulation, as we said before, the seven year, a big part of it is to complete the discipline of Israel. So it makes sense that the church, church age believers would be taken out so that now God can continue and complete his final seven years and his program for Israel, according to prophecy. Uh, I think that also is very strong evidence. Uh, as you said before, all these verses talking about being kept from the wrath of God, that's a promise to church age believers uh, that we're not going to experience that coming wrath. Um, also, if if the rapture happens at the second coming, it kind of seems superfluous. It kind of seems pointless. So Jesus is going to come in the clouds. We're going to go up, be resurrected and go up to be with him where he is and then immediately come back down. I, I just don't think that that really adds up. But rather what does make sense is that we would be... Um, uh, come up into the clouds to be with him. And then as he says, to be where I am. And in John 14, uh, to, to come into my father's house that I'm preparing you. And that during the, that time, which would be during the seven year tribulation, we would be in heaven with him in that house he's prepared, receiving our rewards and also enjoying the, the marriage supper of the lamb. That all seems to, to me to, to fit together uh, a lot better. Um, just a few more. Um, who is going to populate the millennial kingdom? Uh, if this is the case, we know that only believers, like for example, in Matthew 25, are, are going to enter into the kingdom. Well, there's a problem. If the rapture happens before the millennial kingdom, right before, all believers are going to be resurrected. But we know that there have to be non-resurrected believers, people who enter into the kingdom who can repopulate it. Because we see in passages in Isaiah that there's going to be uh, more... Uh, reproduction of children. There's going to be children at that time um, who, uh, you know, there's there's the prophecy of children playing by the snake's den, that kind of thing. Um, so we also know that clearly in the eternal state, resurrected people do not reproduce. So there has to be non-resurrected believers who enter into the kingdom. The only way that can work is that the church, the rapture happens before the tribulation, all the church age believers and all the believers before that are resurrected. But then there are, we know, some people who come to faith, we often call them tribulation saints, during that tribulation period, and also many Jews who are sealed and who believe that they would, some of those would survive the tribulation, and they then would enter into the millennial kingdom, uh, non-resurrected, and therefore be able to repopulate it. And also, we know that there's going to have to be some children who are not and great-grandchildren, I guess, who are not believers, who then join with the Antichrist, or sorry, join with Satan uh, in the final rebellion at the end of Revelation 22. So um, that's that's another reason. Also, just the language of the rapture in 1 Corinthians, uh, or sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, is he ends with, encourage one another yes. in this. It's like, well, why would they be so concerned? Oh, man, you know, some of our 
loved ones who are believers, they've died. Are they going to be part of the resurrection? And we're they were the Thessalonians were concerned about these people that they might miss out. Well, if the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, why would they need to be encouraged about that? It would be the opposite. They would be thinking, oh, like, man, our, our family and friends are so, so blessed. They're not going to go through this tribulation, right? But we are, right? And it, the encouragement would kind of go the opposite way, if that makes sense. But just finally, uh, two more things, which I think are, for me, the biggest. Uh, one you already mentioned is just there's these very different descriptions. There's some similarities, but big differences in the passages, particularly in Matthew 24 and 25, that talk about Jesus' second coming and the passages in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 that talk about the rapture. And there's a lot of them. Just uh, let me, I'm not going to read every passage, but here, just let me list off a few. Uh, but the rapture, Christ comes in the air, and this is what you were talking about, and returns to heaven. At the final event of his second coming, he just comes to earth and dwells and reigns on earth. Uh, at the rapture, Christ gathers up his own. Well, at the final event of the second coming, angels gather the elect. Uh, at the rapture, Christ comes to reward. While well, at the final events of the second coming, Christ comes to judge. I think that's a big one. The, the language in the in in the in the rapture passages are all a positive thing, and it's about uh, rewards and the church coming and being together. Whereas the the passages about the second coming are focused on judgment in Matthew and also in Revelation. Uh, at the rapture, resurrection is the is the prominent feature. While well, at the final event of the second coming, resurrection is not even mentioned in the Olivet discourse. Uh, at the rapture, believers depart the earth, while at the final events of the second coming, unbelievers are taken away from the earth. Uh, at the rapture, unbelievers remain on earth, or that's implied anyway, right? The, the unbelievers don't, nothing happens to them. Well, at the final event of the second coming, believers, believers remain on earth, and it's actually the unbelievers who are taken away. And by the way, can we just quickly dispel something really quick, a passage that people use as a rapture passage, and it's not. Uh, in Matthew uh, 25, right, where it talks about, like, in the days of Noah, right? Um, some were taken away. Who was taken away in the time of Noah, the judgment? It wasn't um, it wasn't Noah, the righteous. the righteous. It was the unrighteous who were taken away to judgment. And so that passage, that famous passage where, you know, they're at the millstone, right? And one is taken away and one is left. Um, where's where you get that left behind idea from. That's not talking about the rapture. That's talking about the judgment. Uh, so uh, just want to want to clear that up. Um, you know, there's, there's a few others. Um, in the rapture, there's no mention of establishing Christ's kingdom on earth. Well, at the final event of the second coming, that's that's the emphasis. Um, and uh, a few other differences too. But but there are many of these differences. And I think that that is very strong evidence that these are talking about two different events that happen at two different times. But then the final reason that I think is really strong evidence is the doctrine of imminence. Um, there are many, many passages that are telling us to look out for Jesus coming and that it could happen at any moment nobody knows the time, right? Well, and that as believers, we're to be looking not at signs, right? We're to looking for Christ's return, for that blessed hope. We're looking for the blessed hope, as Paul says in Titus 2. Whereas the passages about the second coming in Matthew 24 and 25 are all about signs, right? Whereas the rapture is a signless coming of Christ, that only and and so that only makes sense if the rapture happens before the tribulation, and then all of these uh, signs will be there that the people who are left, the unbelievers, will know. They can look to the Bible and see, oh, okay, I see the signs. This is what's happening now, 
right? So as believers, we're looking for Christ and for his coming, for the rapture, which is a signless coming and it's imminent. It can happen at any moment. Whereas those in the tribulation who will be anticipating all these judgments to come, that will be filled with signs and they will see exactly what's happening, right? And the second coming of Christ will only happen after those seven years. Uh, hope that makes sense. Hope that gives you at least something to chew on and to look into it more. But we believe the evidence is very strong for a pre-trib rapture. Uh, so just finally, let's just take a minute just to talk about what difference this makes. Like, why does holding this position uh, actually affect the Christian life in some significant ways? And, and I would just say one is the doctrine of imminence. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, just knowing that that Jesus could come at any moment, that that makes a huge different difference in our lives. Uh, and and in fact, in different places in the word, it says like live. Basically, it's telling us to live in light of the fact that he could come in any moment, not not to make us scared of like, oh, no, if I get caught sinning, I'm somehow going to like not make it. I'm not going to be raptured. But more so just like, don't you want to be found serving faithfully? Uh, and uh, of course, like that, that's exactly what we want to be found doing. That, that would be such an amazing thing. And so knowing that the return of Christ is imminent, that the rapture could happen at any moment should be urging us to uh, to serve our Lord faithfully as well. And and you also mentioned before, too, just uh, thinking about the encouragement that we see in these rapture passages. Uh, it's supposed to encourage one another. Uh, I just think of, you know, the persecuted church right mm -hmm. now today, um, you know, hopefully they're looking at the return of Christ and are thinking, yes, I'm so excited about that because we'll be delivered from this terrible tribulation that we're facing now. Uh, and that would actually be an encouragement to them, but it would not be an encouragement to them if they're already facing terrible persecution and tribulation. And then they read uh, that the great tribulation is going to be worse than anything the world has ever seen. Uh, and they're thinking, I thought this was bad. And it's going to get worse? What? Like, no, uh, they, they should have that encouragement, that hope Christ is going to return. I'm going to be raptured. I'm going to be delivered from this wrath of man on earth that I'm already facing. And I'll never face that wrath of mm. God either. And I think uh, I think the fact that all of these passages are supposed to be encouragements uh, should encourage us and not make us afraid of what we might face should we face, uh, you know, when the tribulation comes, because uh, as, as we've mentioned, we don't believe that we'll be here. And it would just be, it would just be, uh, you know, wouldn't make sense mm -hmm. to, to be afraid of the fact that Christ is coming soon. Yeah. And I just had two things more to that. Another is that um, I really think this is the only position, the pre-trib position where you can maintain a consistent, literal, normal, plain hermeneutic and not spiritualize particularly things that happen in Revelation. Um, every one who holds post-trib view, there's just some some uh, some some stuff in Revelation that inevitably you have to spiritualize to some degree, I think, uh, to hold that position. At least I've never read a commentator or anyone who's held that position who doesn't do that, especially when it comes to Israel and making the church present in during the tribulation and not a focus on Israel. So then you have to spiritualize the 144,000 that can't be Israel. It's got to be some you know, the church in some way, that sort of thing. And we believe very strongly that uh, the scriptures themselves, uh, and you can go back to the episode on that if you like, um, show us that a, a literal, plain, normal interpretation, taking God at his word, um, 
with progressive revelation is absolutely essential to understanding the Bible in any um, coherent way. Uh, but then the other thing I would just say is that it gives us great freedom as believers, because here's the thing, if the, there's a chance that we would go through the seven-year tribulation, then we, what's going to happen is what you see happening, especially right now, and we talked about this a bit last week, is you're going to have a whole lot of believers that are horribly distracted from the mission and ministry we've been given each day because they're consumed with the what-ifs. Maybe this is the beginning of the tribulation. Maybe he is the Antichrist. Maybe this is the mark of the beast. And completely paralyzed because everything is just consumed with the what ifs. Maybe, 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 maybe. You're constantly looking for these signs. And, and I see that. I mean, that's happening today where people are completely consumed with the fact that this must be the return of Christ. And they you know, spend hours after hours after hours watching all of these shows and these speakers who are telling you, look at what's happening in the world. This is this, this, and this, and this, and this. Now, ironically, a lot of those people somehow are pre-trib and I don't, which makes no sense and isn't consistent. But if you're, if you were consistently post-trib, you would have to be doing that. But the freedom we have, as Paul says again, often is we're looking for Christ's coming. Christ could come at any moment, which means I need to be about the Father's business. And what is that? It is to make disciples of all nations. When Christ returns, that's up to him. That's not my problem. That's not something I need to worry about. That's not something to think about. All I need to think about is it could happen any moment. And when Christ comes, I want to be uh, found faithful to the mission and ministry he's given me so that he will say, well done. And that I won't be ashamed, but will receive rewards. That's what I want. And I just find that incredibly freeing. And I think another great benefit to this. Okay, well, hopefully, if anything, that's just whet your appetite to be looking into these uh, matters a little bit more deeply. Um, but join us next time. We'll be discussing chapters 90 to 92 in the book, which will actually conclude Ryrie's section on the end times, but also include, conclude the entire book. Uh, with a helpful summary of the millennial kingdom, future judgments, and our eternal destiny, which I think is just a great way to end this series. So until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and forever. See ya. So long.